0: Six five six seven eight. I
1: rise, you rise, we rise, we rise, we rise.
2: Good afternoon and welcome to We Rise here on 89.3 FM KPFB in Berkeley, occupied Ohlone territory known as Huchin. I'm your host for this hour, Kat Petru, and today's show is called The Witching Hour. And it's called that because I've invited three incredible folks to the station to talk about witches, whiteness, femininity, and decolonization and healing. You know what you would typically cover in 58 minutes, right? So we have a hefty show to bring to you and I have utter faith that we will do so with integrity and dignity and grace and courage and humility. Thank you all so much for being here. I'll let each of them introduce themselves, but we have Grace Deal, Kelsey Gustafson, and Joanna Holden. Thank you all for being here. Can we start out with introductions?
0: Hey everyone. My name is Joanna, Joanna Holden. I grew up here in Berkeley. I'm 26. I am a witch. I'm also Jewish and Irish. I'm white. I work at the Oakland LGBTQ Center doing reparations work, uh, redistributing wealth to support programs that support QTPOC folks in our community. And I help people design underworld journeys uh, to give birth to themselves uh, with a particular focus on queer and trans folks. It's nice to be out here.
2: Thank you so much, Joanna. It's such an honor to have you here. Who wants to share next?
3: I'm Kelsey Maeve Crane Gustafson, also born and raised in occupied Ohlone territory, a.k.a. Berkeley. My ancestors came from Northwestern Europe, specifically Ireland and Scandinavia. And I am a recovering yoga teacher. (laughs) I'm learning a lot of my training at the moment. As a white person, uncovering how appropriation and white supremacy express themselves in the healing industry and in the economic landscape in which I find myself, I'm seeking to decolonize embodiment practices and ask How can I connect with my body in a way that honors my ancestry and soul, that honors the longing for connection and also the power structures um, and harm that extractive practices have? So I've always been connected to the earth and always identified as a fairy and a witch and calling that magic and trust in my own ancestry back and it's really great to be here with all of you. Thank you.
4: Hi everybody, my name's Grace, and I live in Portland at the moment, although I grew up in New Jersey. My people are from outside of Pittsburgh in the hills there, and they came across the ocean from a variety of countries in Europe, and I'm so humbled and pleased to be sitting here with all of you and exploring these themes together. I'm trained as a environmental scientist, but my heart beats for nature and always been trying to figure out how to connect. And so for me, decolonization is a lot about how, as a white person, I've been trained to connect to the earth and see it um,
2: individually and with my community. So I'm stoked to Thanks. have this combo today. Thank you so much. And I'll, I'll go ahead and give an intro, too. So I'm Kat or Catherine Duval Petru. And I wanted to name for full disclosure that we all know each other in some way. Joanna and Grace just met today, but um, just to name that we've been having these conversations and doing this work together for a few years um, in some way, shape, or form. Um, I was born in, in Berkeley in occupied Huchin and raised in Oakland, um, also occupied Huchin, I believe. And my dad is an immigrant. He was born in England and his parents are Czech, they're Holocaust survivors. And my mom, uh, her family, has been in California for a while, but they come from Holland and Scotland and France and a place called All Saints- Lorraine, which is sort of between like the German and French border, to my knowledge. and I'm still learning about all of this lineage and ancestry. And um, I've been doing radio production for a few years. I've also been a dancer my whole life. I never taught yoga, but I did study it and absolutely align with Kelsey's perspective on that. And I've done a gajillion things, but media production in humble service of collective liberation is where I'm at at the moment. And I'm very humbled and grateful to be doing the show with all of you. Let's go back to when we were little. What are some of your earliest memories of magic? Do you want the witch song? If you want.
3: Who were the witches? Where did they come from? Maybe
0: your great-great-grandmother was one. Witches were wise, wise people, they say. And there's a little witch in every person today.
2: Thank you. So that was Kelsey and Joanna singing. Can you tell us what that song is? Where did you learn it?
3: I learned it, I believe, in the Berkeley Public School District in class in elementary school.
0: I do not remember learning this song, but <laughs> evidently it happened at some point growing up here.
3: As soon as I sang it, there was a recognition, right? hmm
2: <laughs> What do you remember about magic from when you were little?
4: When I was little in New Jersey, um, magic was a bad word. I grew up in uh, going to the church pretty regularly. And I think, I don't know what exactly they taught about magic at church, but in my house, we didn't like watch shows that were about magic and we didn't celebrate Halloween. And it was just kind of like a bad word. And so my understanding of magic as a child was connected to anything that happened outside but it wasn't something that anybody would ever like felt comfortable talking about when we were little.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can actually jump in and say like, it is nerve wracking to talk about this. I produce a show for another dear sister called birth Bruja. And they've been talking about how, what what it means to come out and name claim that word. And it translates to which from Spanish and, This is really the first time that I've done anything like this on a show. And I still don't, like my relationship to the word witch is confusing. I can actually share two things, two stories. So one is a dream that I had this past weekend where I had made bags of medicine. They were just dried herbs and like plastic bags that I wanted to give to people. And my family came in, they were like accusing me of basically being crazy. And it was, and I was like, oh my God, they're right. Like I'm broken and there's something wrong with me. And I think this dream, I'm not making it up. And it speaks to that legacy of witch burnings in Europe. And I know we'll get into the connection between the witch burnings in Europe and colonization and the way that those heteropatriarchal imperial colonial practices expanded and spread in really violent and deadly ways. Um, and then another piece just to answer my own question about memories of magic. I was like maybe four or five years old sitting on the doorstep, um, at this house in Oakland and I had found a dead bird in the yard and I put it, my mom helped me put it in a shoebox, and I was singing to it. And even though my family's ethnically Jewish, I was raised a Christian scientist and we can also understand the connection between christianity and how that stripped many of our peoples of earth-based spirituality as some call it today um but this practice of christian science i just learned it to sort of mean that like everything is sacred and um that's like a huge simplification but that was one way i understood it and I just felt such a connection to this dead bird and I wanted to sing to it. That was how I knew how to pray, was like singing to this bird. And it felt, I'll never forget that. That's one variation. And another is like Disney, right? Like witches were evil in Disney movies and then the fairy princesses or like fairy godmothers had fairy dust. So to me, magic was very alive and especially for me in playing make-believe and being outside. Those are some things.
0: It's really interesting that you're talking about singing because um, singing was a huge part of my childhood and it was a very solo activity. I was diagnosed with autism when I was very young um, and I didn't really spend a lot of time with other kids. I mostly just hung out in the trees, like, with plants. Me and my sister were really close and we would play hunter-gatherer, collecting plants and, like, smashing them together with, like shampoo or like popcorn grease and like leaving them to ferment and then just opening it up later and being like, this didn't work. Uh, <laughs> and then like trying other things. So for me, I was raised in a agnostic household in which people didn't really talk about religion. It was kind of like tacitly frowned upon to have any kind of faith. And so for me, my whole life has been like discovering What practices connect me with the earth and being out in nature has always been part of that and singing has always been part of that. I remember being super self-conscious when I was young because I just had this overwhelming sense of an energy source that I would call the goddess these days, but I didn't know at the time that was just coursing through me all the time. And when I was alone out in nature, I would just open my mouth and words would come out not in any language that I'd ever heard. And I would just walk for like hours like through the sagebrush singing. And I think the first time that I met another trans girl who had had that kind of oracular experience growing up and had just felt really like weird and broken because of it but also had to do it because it was healing and nourishing meeting someone else who had had that experience like broke something open inside me and I was able to be like okay this was okay this wasn't a diagnosis this wasn't a disease this is holy yeah
3: Mm. wow so I grew up in a hippie commune in Berkeley (laughs) (laughs) and it was made up of people who were mostly raised in A religious context. So, my parents were both raised Christian. My mom was Catholic. My dad was Protestant. And they felt repressed and oppressed by religion and vowed not to raise me that way. They wanted to relieve their child of that burden. And I grew up in a household where we celebrated Christmas, we celebrated Hanukkah in the public school district, we celebrated Kwanzaa, we celebrated solstice. And I grew up with this relationship to ritual and holidays and celebration that was kind of like, oh, I can just make anything up or do anything. It was this real um, mashup of ways that I was introduced to as a child. And so I actually invented my own holiday around the wintertime because I didn't really like anything that was being presented to me. It didn't speak to my innermost world. And I asked my father how to say woman in another language. And since my dad grew up in southern New Mexico speaking Spanish, he told me hermana means sister in Spanish. So I made up a holiday called Santa Hermanas Day Mm -hmm. where (laughs) to me growing up the witch and fairy and queen and goddess were all kind of in the same category. I never thought of witches as dirty or bad or scary. So Santa Hermana was a fairy with long silver hair and she wrote a pegacorn and she came into the home on solstice and it was basically a variation on Christmas, but instead of putting out stockings you'd put out an earthen sack. Mm. And instead of putting out cookies and milk, you'd put out almonds and herbal tea. (laughs) And Santa Hermana would leave treats on the altar and you would pull a tarot card and light a candle and burn something and make a prayer, make a wish for the coming season, put it in a box and then look at it the next solstice to see what happened. Um, So I had vast inner worlds of fairies and queens and really wanted everything to be more feminine and It's interesting for me now to look back and see that even as a child, I felt entitled to just like take words and concepts from anywhere and create my own spirituality. And, you know, I think that's really what has happened in a lot of the new age hippie contexts. Um, So whether that's okay or not is another conversation, but
2: that's definitely how I grew up. Well, we can name that it's pretty. I mean, it's definitely okay to be imaginative and to plug into these miraculous channels of communication with other realms, other beings, etc. But I think we all know at this point it's not okay to steal. That's what colonization is. And I want to name that we initially we're gonna have two other women on this show um, who both happen. None of the four of us sitting here are mamas of human babies, and the other two women are, and they often. Um, get pulled into raising their kids and don't have so much time for the kind of labor that it takes to make media. For example, they're laboring as moms. And one of them, in addition to being a full-time mom of three young boys, is also a graduate student in women's spirituality. And she sent a quote that I'm going to share. And I think it's a bit controversial, actually, but there's something in it that speaks to a bit of what Kelsey's getting into. So this quote comes from... Indigenous rights attorney and activist author Sherry Mitchell of the Penobscot Nation from her book, Sacred Instructions, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit-Based Change. She says, when the newcomers came to this land, they believed that they were here to conquer new lands. What they didn't realize is that they had been drawn here by spirit to seek healing from the illusion of separation that they had been operating under. Unfortunately, the illusion was so deeply entrenched, and the disconnect from spirit so profound, that the signal was clouded. The farther they traveled from their spiritual connection, the stronger the signal became. But the message received was distorted by the illusion. All they knew was that there was an unquenchable longing inside them. The longing caused the newcomer to become increasingly more insatiable in their appetites. They traveled from place to place, consuming everything in their path, and yet the hunger in their hearts was never satisfied. They did not come here by accident. They were drawn to a spiritual calling that echoed all the way back to the hands of the creator. Together... We must turn from our stories of domination and destruction and begin to write a new story based on cooperation and conscious co-creation of a more humane and sacred way of being. End quote. You're listening to We Rise on 89.3 FM KPFB. I'm your host, Kat Petru, and those are the voices of Grace Deal, Joanna Holden, and Kelsey Gustafson for The Witching Hour. Let's return to the conversation.
0: I've been thinking a lot about um, this article. I'm going to tie this all back together, don't worry. I've been thinking a lot about this article that I read a few months ago, maybe a, a year ago, and I forget exactly the title, but it was something along the lines of there is no room for white people in black liberation. And I read the article and I found myself really agreeing because what the article was saying was that if we approach our participation in the movement from a place of, oh, we are good white people coming in to like help you and fix things and just actually do your job better than you can and actually there's no room for you in this liberation because we're making it all about ourselves, mm-hmm. then that's just white supremacy. And that's true in our activism and that's true in our spiritual communities as well what I get from this quote that you read is that unless we, as white people, take the time to grieve the ways in which colonization has damaged our souls, and unless we really rethink the way we see ourselves in relationship with other people, not as the center of everything, but just as people who are going to be irrevocably changed and have our identities destabilized and perhaps lost, then we will never leave behind white supremacy.
2: Yeah, okay, you just, you got me to the point of what I find could be misleading about this quote. I think it could be read or heard as like letting us, letting white people, letting colonizers and settlers off the hook because there was some calling. That's what I find problematic. But what I think it does bring up is kind of what Kelsey and you are alluding to in your comments, um, which is this severance that arose in old Europe with the rise of capitalism and the witch burnings. And maybe, Grace, can you speak a bit to that? I don't know if the other two of you have read this book by Silvia Federici called Caliban and the Witch. I've read parts of it. But, Grace, I know you read it cover to cover. Can you just talk a little bit about what you learned from that reading? Yeah, Absolutely. So the places that I see that
4: book intersecting with the quote is just what you're talking about, that when colonization arrived in the shores of Europe, right on the coattails of the birth of capitalism, so the initial accumulation of capital, what happened when the commons were enclosed? And our ancestors, gesturing to the folks that we're recording with, were cut off from their communal holdings and hand in hand with the people being um, cut off from their land that there was held in community. Also women and women's control over their body and agency over their very bodies was severed through the witch burnings. And so we have kind of multiple ways that the state destroyed all those ties. And so what could be characterized as our ancestry and our spiritual inheritance was kind of taken and destroyed by capitalism and colonialism initially. And then Federici details the witch burnings and their spread and all the travesties that were included because not only did women not need to have agency over their own bodies because their bodies became the production of labor for the state, Mm -hmm. which continued to contribute to that accumulation of the initial capital at the Mm -hmm. beginning of capitalism. And then those practices were exported through colonialism to the so-called new world. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: And I would add that in addition to women being targeted, really anyone who threatened the state's ability to have utter control over reproduction was targeted. right? cis women, trans women, gender non-conforming people, people practicing abortions, people and, really just building power outside of, outside of the things that we now call whiteness and patriarchy. I think it's important to remember too that in Europe, there have always been people of color. Our ancestors have always been in deep community, intermarrying with, raising families with, building power with folks who passed through and settled in our communities and we have done the same there's there's been millennia of cultural exchange before um, this modern imperialism took form and a lot of the practices developed in europe during that time were later refined during colonization and often later brought back as we saw with things like the holocaust Um, i think a lot about the origin of the word faggot being anyone who was burned with a a bundle of oak sticks phagose, Whoa. uh oak trees and you know my ancestors were the druids which also comes from the word for oak which meant truth but witch burnings and the creation of these maligned gender and sexual identities went hand in hand and then when colonialism went outward One of the first things that it attacked were the queer and trans community leaders of all different diverse expressions that we see in indigenous communities around the world. Our ancestors who had cut that part of ourselves off of ourselves with great violence somehow understood that they could break the resistance of societies that were being colonized by killing these leaders, these queer and trans people who had that political power and had that spiritual power, that connection with boundaries and with the other world, whatever that looks like. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, for me, reclaiming my womanhood, reclaiming my faggotry is an incredibly powerful part of standing up to this legacy.
3: So I'm remembering that the Inquisition and the witch burnings was not, you know, the first beginning of patriarchy or anything like that. But it did set forward a powerful set of social norms that we are still experiencing today. And the forms of abuse that the so-called witches experienced were exported to the colonized states and became a style of conquest that was spread. Um, It's with us today in the form of rape culture. Mm -hmm. Marital rape wasn't a crime in all 50 states until 1993. And today, barely 1% of rapists ever see a day in jail. We are living in a rape culture where essentially empathy for women, for magical people, for genderqueer folks, for people practicing magic, living outside the norms, people expressing themselves sexually or magically, is unsafe because of all of this lineage. There's not a lot of justice or empathy for this experience. And I have really felt in my personal life this deep wounding of take her, not me, Mm -hmm. being very alive Mm -hmm. during the time of the witch burnings. Daughters were forced to testify against their mothers and then witness them being executed in front of their eyes in a public square. Uh, People were put in masks and harnesses, much like the BDSM costumery or outfits, I don't know what to call it, of today, and paraded around, publicly shamed and humiliated specifically for their sexuality. And it was to the point where any two women having a conversation was considered dangerous that could make you a witch that could risk your life. And so one of the questions I ask is like, what does it mean to be racialized as white today in this context? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be sexual? What does it mean to be magical? And what ways have all of these identities been informed by this history of violence and What does it imply in terms of allyship to know that the ways that our ancestors were colonized and abused a long time ago have been exported and are playing out today in terms of racism and racial violence and colonialism?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really deep level of indoctrination we receive as white people that even people who mean well find ourselves reflexively um, jumping to solutions that actually are tools of white supremacy, like this idea that prisons would exist to punish rape rather than being a vehicle for rape. The fact that the rape of men of color is invisible, even though it's systemicized by our government and our society. I think that can be scary for us, realizing that Our first instinct for what keeps us safe is actually a tool for oppression sometimes. But I think it gives us a huge opportunity to find points of commonality and solidarity with our siblings.
4: Yeah, I would just add to some of the themes that we're bringing up. um, The kind of duality that was invented around that time, that the earth is inanimate. Just another theme going along with magic being... The duality of, you know, magic being bad and Christianity being good that we still feel every day. And just to name also that um, neo-colonial states continue to thrive and follow the same model that Federici points out when the wool industry began with that enclosure of the commons. That was the impetus, at least for that wave of patriarchal practices that we see play out globally, you know, every day with all kinds of industry.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think in addition to thinking about how the trauma that we've been through pushes violence on a global level, I think it's important to think of how very active colonization fueled so much of our repression as white women. Think about the vast amounts of wealth accumulated by European governments during colonization and yes. ask yourself seriously, would patriarchy be the powerful force that it is if it had not been subsidized yes that way
2: you're listening to we rise on 89.3 fm kpfb i'm your host kat petru and those are the voices of grace deal joanna holden and kelsey gustafson for the witching hour let's return to the conversation well so kelsey you posed the question what does it mean to be racialized as white a lot of things are circulating in my mind and like i named at the beginning of the show we are taking a deep plunge in 60 minutes. And by no means is this the extent of these conversations. We're just getting into the beginning and I wanna just say that. And this is why I mentioned the term or the phrase and the intention collective liberation because as we're all starting to explain with these stories and these histories, the pain and the struggle and the trauma and the violence are interconnected. They're different to be sure and they're interconnected. And so it's our part of the work that I see us doing as people identified as women, as white, as magical, is doing our part to start to heal some of this intergenerational trauma, even in our, just in our own lineages, right? And then of course it's collective because we affect one another. And I think you just spoke to some of the ways we have been falsely trained to see separation. But um, another thing I wanted to say, as far as whiteness goes, is that it's fabricated. Yeah. (laughs) It's a myth to dominate people. And so we can even just look to the history of this nation state, of this settler colony of the United States to know that Jews weren't initially seen as white, Irish folks weren't seen as white, and that there were laws that started to be written that qualified what whiteness is. And in order to assimilate and gain social capital and power, people who came to this land, it was like a survival tactic to be as white as you could. And that what frames and and constructs the culture and the values of whiteness is fabricated, which doesn't mean to say, oh, I'm not white. It means to say that it's something that was made to create a system of power and destruction and domination, and we can undo it, Mm -hmm. which takes a ton of time and work and generational effort. So that's one thing that I thought of. And also that these are all systems, right? Because as Joanna's hinted to before, gender, like this gender binary is also a conditional construct that changes from culture to culture throughout time and space. And race is the same way. And so it's irresponsible. And um, there's a Noam Chomsky quote, you can't be neutral on a moving train. So for someone racialized as white to be like, oh, whatever, whiteness is a social construct. Let's brush it off. There's no accountability there to the fact that white supremacy and racism are embedded in this in this society and have very real material (laughs) effects so there's like a both and in that but also whiteness heteropatriarchy all of these systems they have this way of like reaching their arms out and pulling stuff in so in the holocaust for example I mentioned my grandparents are holocaust survivors I'm also a student of ASL American Sign Language and Deaf Studies and I'm reading about it right now and was reminded of how One figure I just learned is that over 270,000 people identified as deaf or disabled in some way were also taken to death camps during the Holocaust. And so you have the rise of autism and ableism. Maybe that's not not the rise of it, but it's certainly part of these intersecting systems that crush our spirits and destroy the land and hurt us and hurt each other.
0: I think it's always so important for white people to lean into discomfort during discussions like this, because I think that the way that white supremacy survives is through this social moray that it's too awkward to talk about it. That somehow, like, oh, I can't help the color of my skin. And that's, that's historically just not how whiteness originated. Whiteness at least the legal terminology surrounding whiteness, really developed in this country after Bacon's rebellion in the late 1700s when Irish indentured servants and black Africans living in slavery bonded together and organized and actually burned down one of the biggest cities in the Virginia colony. I think it was Richmond. Um, And after that, planners literally got together and devised a caste system that would break the back of Organized labor. And that's white supremacy in its modern American formulation. And like race has always been contingent, you know, and whiteness is extended to groups who, if they organize with the most oppressed, would actually pose a threat to the system. Like Irish people, we were some of the first groups of people to be taken off our land, forced into essentially labor camps, although they called them villages, and starved to death. That's the history of the Irish people. But now if you look at Irish people in the United States, we are the policemen, we are some of the people who defend white supremacy most fervently. Mm. Um, and so to not be historically blind, but actually to understand how we became white and what we lost in the process, mm-hmm. um, not in, only in terms of like our ability to be good to others, but just in terms of our ability to love ourselves. Like whiteness is founded on intense self-hatred. Mm. Um, And I think a lot of white people are tempted into this idea of like, oh, let's use our whiteness to help those people. Because if we actually took a moment to think about what whiteness has cost us, we would have to spend years grieving it.
3: Yeah, On the themes of grief and hunger and yearning and what was lost. I have been on a journey of really getting sober with myself around the pain of ancestral abandonment. It's like there's this part of me that's so essential to my identity and therefore impacts all my relations, you know? my relationship to where I live and who's in my life in terms of humans and more than human beings. And this deeply intimate part has been severed, and that is the care for and acknowledgement of ancestry. And confronting that, what has been essentially considered not important, considered irrelevant, forgotten, not passed down, For so many reasons, right? Because of assimilation, colonization, um, survival, essentially. Turning towards that is painful. It has been painful for me. And I have spent the last 10 years on this kind of... um, you could call it a spiritual journey, but driven by this intense hunger, this intense thirst, this intense yearning to know who I am, to connect with myself, with spirit, with the world, to have purpose and meaning. And and because it's been so rejected. There is a volatility there. It's not safe. You know, I've spent the last 10 years singing in Sanskrit, Mm. singing in Hebrew, uh, singing in Spanish, singing in Lakota, and not knowing the languages of my ancestors. Meanwhile, my ancestors are waiting here for me to Mm. sing over their bones. And there is so much grief there. And to not know really how to begin or where to start. And, to look towards the history and see a bunch of Christianity and have to really read between the lines to know where I come from in a pre-patriarchal, earth-connected ancestor sense. And then also to not just totally idealize and romanticize my ancestors as these bearers of light and hope and sanity in such an insane time, but to also acknowledge where we are. You know, I heard Stephen Jenkinson speak on the topic of ancestry, and he said, let's pitch your tent in the cavern of what happened and Mm. don't mistake it for the Valley of the Gods. Mm. So bringing in, like, where we are now and what happened and also the atrocities committed by our ancestors as white folks. And I just had this story I wanted to share as a personal story of – you know, in my hunger, I have been voraciously consuming commercialized, you know, spirituality, you know, things that are available to me, you know, yoga and meditation and retreats. And they're not Irish and they're not, they're not connected to my ancestry, um, usually. And the most recent one I did was I went on a Jewish retreat to celebrate Passover in the desert. And I was really trying to participate. I was singing in Hebrew and trying to follow along. And all of a sudden, it was like everyone was smiling and dancing and connecting to their ancestors. And I felt this doom consuming my whole being. And I couldn't do it. I felt like I was going to cry. So I ran away from the gathering into the desert and sobbed for hours with the grief of, it was like my ancestors intervened and said, don't sing another word in Hebrew, until you learn to sing to us. Mm. And I think that in the process of deconstructing white supremacy and racism and colonization, it's really important also to learn how to nourish ourselves in the form of reconnecting with our ancestors. And one thing I've been learning is how to sing in Gaelic, in this dialect of my ancestors, and learning how to tend and nourish myself so that, you know, maybe cultural sharing is possible, right? But, not to come to the dinner party so starving, so hungry. It's rude. Like, you come in, like, give me that, like, reaching across the table, like, eating all the hors d'oeuvres, like, not not considering anyone and not bringing anything to the table. It's, like, coming not only empty-handed, but starving mm. and entitled. And it's, like, okay, how can I learn to feed myself so I can be a more respectful and responsible guest? How can I learn to nourish my own ancestral roots so that I can be in better relation? Mm with myself and that to me is a really important part of the self-love
2: thank you so much do you want to sing the song yes go i'd love to that would be beautiful
3: um so this is actually a song that is in scots gaelic an old dialect um, from the hebrides islands it's called the seal lament (Sings) Oh, hoy
1: oh, marx sanjees as marx sanjeed rihagen jarahavi lohai shipjan ar onslei galek chenu gukrai krai
3: perspective of the seal queen. It says, it's from a time when seals were used in the Hebrides islands, eaten as meat, used kind of like cows are. They were also considered magical selkies, fairy-like beings from the sea. The meaning is, Don't you see how you roast the seal host, my king, over the fire? You eat human flesh without recognizing it. But woe betide the person who would strike me down, for I am a queen from another land.
2: Yes! (laughs) Thank you, Kelsey. Wow.
0: I've been thinking a lot about white supremacy as an act of cannibalism. Yep. Do tell. Yeah. And that just reminded me of it. And finding ways of feeding ourselves that are different.
3: And the connection between so many, you know, specifically Irish, but from everywhere, settlers coming to this continent because of, I mean, the story that I've heard is starvation, hunger, famine. Mm-hmm. And that hunger causing this entitlement towards taking, eating, devouring, consuming with no boundaries, no abandon, and somehow this wounding justifying that
2: taking. You're listening to We Rise on 89.3 FM KPFB. I'm your host, Kat Petru, and those are the voices of Grace Deal, Joanna Holden, and Kelsey Gustafson for The Witching Hour. Let's return to the conversation. I wanna turn our attention to Grace for a moment. Grace, you've been working on a manuscript for the last two years. Would you mind sharing with listeners what it's about and and how it came to you? Absolutely, Um, thank you for that song.
4: I am writing a book called Yuppie White Girl Treason, a book of counterspells. And I started it because I couldn't sleep, not for any other higher purpose, there was just something inside of me keeping me up at night with these ideas. So I just, when I got out of bed frustrated, started writing them down. And the way I'm making meaning of that now is my understanding of my ancestors asking for their voices to be heard. Specifically the grandmothers, who have been silenced for thousands and thousands of years. And I'll start by reading just a list of title ideas because I didn't know what I was doing or where I was going. Like I said, I was just trying to get it out of my body. And so that might inform a little bit of the content and then I'll share maybe a page.
2: That would be great, thank you.
4: So, title ideas. Crazy white girl slut. Sorry, not sorry, I'm not crazy. Crazy white girl, sluts know. (laughs) What sluts know? How promiscuous sex saved the world. Hmm. Stay woke, white girl wakes up. Some play off the waking up white. Don't go back to sleep, white girls know. Staying awake underwater, staying awake in the snake pit, in the fire, smoke, pressure chamber, room that fills with sleep inducing smoke. Wake up, guide to being a white girl hussy in the USA. <laughs> Have you ever felt crazy? The cat in the hallway, the red pill, glitch, red pill, blue pill, Privilege reality. Privileged sleepwalk. Sleepwalking to death. Sleepwalking on glass. Is this it? Sick and crazy. Dying of thirst. Dying of sleep. Privilege to death. Nine to five death march. The great awakening. The awakening. White girl wakes up. Zombie apocalypse USA. Waking up at the center of the empire. Yuppie white girl. Treason. Mutiny. Sedition. Yuppie white girl. Letter of treason. Crazy white girl. Death by a thousand cuts. Yuppie white girl traitor, crazy white girl traitor, yuppie white girl goes AWOL, deserter, defector, treasonous awakening, confession, letter, whatever it's called when a soldier writes about why they're leaving, but not in the dances with wolves, I'm romantically joining the native sense, and crazy white girl goes AWOL. Okay. Yes. So those <laughs> title ideas speak to how I grew up. Feeling alone and out of place in the suburbs of New Jersey outside of Philly on the East Coast, where I never knew what a hippie commune was. And we certainly didn't have any witch songs in my elementary school. There was no language for this besides maybe Tinkerbell and the evil crones in the Disney movies. There just wasn't a lot for me to grasp onto. And more than anything else, I wanted so desperately was to connect to the dirt and the plants and, like, trees and, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, nature. But there weren't any adults around me doing that. There wasn't anybody singing in in fields. I didn't have any fields to go sing in. There's just, like, a lot of pavement. Not that in urban places you can't experience the beauty of the sky or feel the breeze and and hear voices in it. But I just felt utterly alone. And so tried to go to sleep. You know, tried to not... Engage in that part of my body that was pulsing the loudest. And so then when I was unable to physically sleep as an adult, I feel like that was, in a sense, an awakening that I could no longer ignore the grief I had in my body for my whole life because of being disconnected from the earth. And so I started to write about it, and it's been very emotional. (laughs) I'm feeling a little emotional right now, so excuse me. But...
2: So I'll just- it's honest, thank you for being honest.
4: Yeah. Yeah, I've certainly tried my whole damn life not to. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because it's hard to feel all these feelings and to not know how to connect with other people about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think the writing has been a way to do that. Most recently I had the great honor to go on a pilgrimage to the little mountain valley outside of Pittsburgh where my both of my grandmother's people are from. and. With my grandma and that plays kind of a pivotal role that cabin and that little clump of woods on a creek plays an important role for me in my whole life of being the place that I could go for a week each year and feel what mud feels like and like see a crayfish in real life and hear birds and um, and get dirty. That was a really important experience. It was kind of like the oasis that I would yearn for all year round until those hot July sultry East Coast Nights would come and we would drive six hours and go. So this page I'll read speaks to that. Thank
2: you.
4: August third, twenty seventeen. Grandma passed away on June twenty ninth, twenty seventeen, a week after we got home from her cabin. The next week I was a zombie. Then I flew home to New Jersey, and my family asked me to speak at grandma's service. When I was home, everyone kept saying, oh wow, how lucky you got to spend time with her, or oh, at least she was so happy when she passed. It wasn't luck, fools. I was instructed to go and I listened, which is completely audacious. If I hadn't been listening, I wouldn't have gone to grad school in California and taken that class where I had to write that mother-line paper for which I had to interview both grandmothers, during which, Grandma reminded my adult self that she wanted to go back to the creek and put her toes in the water. And if I hadn't had the guidance of a student whom I met in California three years ago to do this 10-minute practice in the morning where I started writing to the grandmothers, my benevolent ancestors, then I wouldn't have been reminded to go back to the cabin every damn day for the last nine months. And if I hadn't sought the counsel of my teacher, whom I also met in California, and listened to her encouragement to write, even though I felt ostentatious, then we wouldn't have had, she and I, that phone call early last fall where I said, it's not like I'm going to go to my grandma's cabin and write, to which we both started laughing out loud. And if I hadn't been listening to the wind, like I have since I was a child, trying to follow the shifting currents of intuition, then I wouldn't have listened when the grandmother said go and plan this trip six months ago, 18 months ago, years ago, a lifetime ago. It wasn't luck, it was discipline. And the only thing lucky about it is that the wind speaks to us. And I'm still listening, but I can't really hear anything. I came home and I was a zombie for three more weeks, grieving, I left my heart at the cabin, My good friends telling me it's okay, good job for at least eating, for example. So I surrendered to the sadness over and over and over every damn day, listless, no appetite. I swam in it, I slept in it, fucked in it. I didn't run from it because I couldn't. And now, despite my best efforts for 34 years to outrun it, or at least since I was a child, since I started to taste grief for the earth, I know how sadness tastes, what it feels like in my body. When my lover left after visiting last weekend, for example, I couldn't get out of bed. Oh, I realized I'm sad I could say that sentence. Since I got back from the East Coast and my grandmother's cabin, there hasn't been any smell of oxygen in the water. Every morning when I write to the grandmothers, there's no gentle, playful reminder to get to the cabin, to finish the manuscript before anything else. There's nothing. I'm trying to wait patiently Instead, it feels like night has set in, like the climate has increased just one-tenth of one degree enough to tip the scales towards whatever is next, and we can't go back. Today, it will be 110 degrees Fahrenheit in Portland. It's eclipse season. There is a full moon lunar eclipse in Aquarius on Sunday, and I'm watching the horizon. Then this morning, quietly, finish what you started, tiger in the night. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know what to say about that, but thanks for the invitation.
1: Thank you.
2: I mean, I think, I feel like sometimes people accuse me specifically with a lot of the work I've done on the radio of being like too, not wordy, but um, whatever that word is, where it's like too much jargon. Like I'm saying decolonization and like I'm saying words that feel like terminology to people and it rubs them the wrong way. It feels like it's too intellectual or too academic or too scholar, whatever. And I get that. And I also think they're very helpful words. And I also wanted to say that just like you said, I'm not saying these words because I want to sound smart or cool. This whole conversation arises out of everything you just shared in your manuscript and everything that we've been sharing, it's it's comes from a deep felt place. Mm. And I think we've all known this grief since we were little. And it can be grief from many places. But it's so inspiring to see the ways that we're all taking little steps towards wholeness and wellness that isn't hyper individualistic but has profound tentacles and we are at time basically. So I would love to end this hour with an invitation, but is there any last thing that anyone really needs to say?
0: I mean, I feel like I could talk for a long time, but I just, I really want to reach out to everyone who's listening and tell you that when you decide To reclaim your power as a witch, you do not have to look like any one thing. You don't have to have a vulva. You do not have to have breasts. You do not have to be on estrogen. For me, there's nothing more powerful than finding ways to celebrate and claiming joy as your birthright. Mm -hmm. Um, If you feel called to this, if you feel called to becoming yourself along those lines, do not let the gatekeepers keep you from it because you are holy and you are a blessing and you have deep ancestry. Just because we use academic language to make sense of our experience now doesn't mean that we aren't founded in ancient traditions. There have always been witches. There have always been queer folks. There have always been trans people. And who knows, maybe you will be the next one.
2: So because we're at time... I would love to end this show like I did the last one. I thought it was really fun with an invitation for all of us. If you could cast a spell right now on the themes of this profound healing that we're speaking of, what would it be? I know mine. This is Grace, and um, my
4: spell would be that all humans can understand the language and voices of all non-humans and be able to hear them all the plants all the rivers all the creatures all the trees
3: may we trust in the brilliance of our ancestry and remember the magic that exists in our bloodlines
0: May we let go of our fear of darkness and fully love and embrace the darkness in ourselves.
2: I'm going to pull from, this is Kat, your host for the hour. I'm going to pull from a friend and teacher, Miss T, Tierra Asian Knox, and ask for us all to be able to be just a tiny bit or a lot bit more vulnerable which is her word combining vulnerable and courageous- And for this beauty to have a ripple effect, for example, ending the military-industrial complex, I would love for that to happen in this lifetime, ending white supremacy, ending capitalism, just to name a few. Thank you so much for all of your time and energy and all of the miraculous work you're doing in the world. You've been listening to We Rise on 89.3 FM KPFB. Any resources and links to my guests for this show can be found at mixcloud.com backslash we rise radio. You can find the show archived there as well. And if you'd like to reach out, you can email us at dance is at gmail.com. Have a beautiful weekend.